From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan Lasky. Decades before Tim Kaine served as mayor of the city of Richmond, Virginia, decades before he was the governor of Virginia and then a senator from that state, and decades before he ran for vice president in 2016, Tim Kaine spent a year ministering alongside Jesuits in the country of Honduras. That experience changed his life forever. I remember hearing a bit about Senator Kaine's connections to the Jesuits back when he was running for vice president in 2016, but I didn't know many of the details. So when I had the chance to talk to him recently, I asked the senator to share how the experience shaped his career in public service. Even though Senator Kaine was in Honduras back in 1980 and 81, he still talks about his time there as if he got back just yesterday. It was the experience in Honduras that exposed him to the horrors of poverty and led him to pursue a career in public interest law and then in politics. I asked him about how his faith informs his public service and what Catholics in particular can bring to the public square. In our conversation, I found him to be humble, bright, and deeply faith-filled. And even if you don't agree with all of the senator's political positions, I think you'll be struck by his commitment to service. After my conversation with Senator Kane, stick around to hear a conversation I had with my colleague Harrison Hanvey, who works with me at the Jesuit Conference. Coincidentally, Harrison just got back from a trip to Honduras, where he saw the very Jesuit ministry where Senator Kane served. Harrison's stories provide some helpful context to Senator Kane's own experience. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Senator Tim Kaine, welcome to AMDG. Thank you so much for taking the time. How are you? Mike, I'm great. I'm really happy to be on with you today. Well, as folks might know, you have a lot of Jesuit cred, a lot of Jesuit background and connection. I was wondering maybe if you could start by just talking specifically about your experience with the Jesuits in Honduras, which I know was an important formative experience for you. And Maybe you could just talk a little bit about how that experience kind of changed how you saw the world and maybe how you even saw your vocation. Uh, Mike, I, I'm glad to. So I went to a Jesuit high school in Kansas City, Rockhurst High School, connected to Rockhurst College. And um, at that time, the Missouri province uh, had mission churches in Honduras and Belize. And so we would do a mission drive at Rockhurst High School every year. Two students would accompany the check down to El Progreso Honduras so that they could then come back and kind of sponsor or lead the mission drive the following year. In the spring of 1974, when I was a sophomore at Rockhurst, I went to visit the Jesuits in El Progreso Honduras. And when I was leaving to come back, I thought I'd love to come back and volunteer sometime. And that was just filed away in the back of my head. About seven years later, I was in the middle of my first year at Harvard Law School. I had gone to Mizzou and then to Harvard, and I was young. I went through college in three years, and I found myself in the middle of that first year, not sure, why am I rushing? What do I want to do with my life? And then I recall that I had often thought, maybe I'll go back to Honduras and volunteer. So I wrote the Jesuits um, in El Progreso, some of whom had been there uh, seven years earlier and said, I'd love to come volunteer for a year. And I went there, um, and during that academic year, 1980 and 81, um, a guy named Brother Jim O'Leary uh, put me to work running the uh, Instituto Tecnico Loyola, te the Loyola Technical Institute. They had just started it. 
and it was a school that, that taught kids to be carpenters, um, middle school age boys. There are about 30 kids there. I helped uh, run the school, started a welding program, started a, a, a night school for adults, um, but really fell under the influence of this great group of Jesuits. And they were from the Missouri province, but there were also some Spaniards from Galicia, northwestern Spain. It was a very transformative time for me. Um, exposure to really grinding poverty, um, being thrust into a different culture, a different language. Um, but being around people who I still consider, you know, the great spiritual mentors of my life, Jim O'Leary, Ray Pease, Patricia Wade, um, they're all deceased now. But these were these were true heroes who, as they would say in Spanish, they, ha they had a gift of andando con la gente, walking with the people. And I learned a lot about spirituality in action uh, through them, but also through my students and their families. They're their great faith under the most trying circumstances uh, was it was a true inspiration to me. And I think about some aspect of my time in Honduras every day. Hmm. And when so when you came back then to continue law school, did you have a, a sense of direction that that experience had, you know, set you in a, a new way with new clarity? Um, how did that your discernment? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. I, I that was probably why I went, you know, to figure things out. Harvard was a place with a placement office that would easily get you a job on Wall Street or with a big firm making a lot of money. And I knew that kind of wasn't what I wanted to do, but I didn't really know what it was that I did want to do. So Honduras really um, taught me a couple of things. One, that I wanted to use my legal career to help the least of these from, you know, in, the, in that sense, from the gospel. Um, it gave me a real passion for Latino communities, uh, immigrant communities. Um, but I also did a lot of reading when I was in Honduras. And one of the things I read was the powerful um, statement by Dr. Martin Luther King that the most segregated hour of the week is 11 o'clock Sunday morning. I was going to, a, to mass at the, uh, the main church in the center of Progreso, super diverse population. And it caused me to reflect on my own church going experiences, kind of the big suburban parish. Every, everything seemed to be extremely well-timed to enable the parking lot to fill up and empty before the next mass. And that was more important in some ways than the spirit within the mass. And um, I decided when I came back to the United States that I wanted to try to find a Catholic parish that would replicate the feeling that I got when I was at mass in Honduras. And I started uh, then to search for and eventually found a real church home in predominantly African-American parishes, um, first in Macon, Georgia, a parish called St. Peter Claver, uh, and then my longtime parish in Richmond, St. Elizabeth, where an awful lot of the parishioners um, might have originally come from families that were Protestant Baptist, often had the experience of going to maybe a Catholic school in the neighborhood and had become Catholic, but had experienced great discrimination, including within the church and the larger society. Um, just like my friends in Honduras, had often felt looked down upon or, or put upon because they were poor. And so um, my path as a civil rights lawyer and, and public servant, but also the way that I worship within the Catholic family was dramatically uh, affected by that experience. And the other thing that was great about it is by taking a year off, I was now delayed at Harvard Law School and in the class of my wife who started a year behind me. And I'm not sure because Harvard's a pretty big law school. I'm not sure I ever would have 
met Anne uh, had I not taken that year off and then moved back a year into her class. Well, the Holy Spirit at work, certainly. Um, I, I, so I did want to, I'm going to tell you a, qu a quote you maybe you've heard, John Carr, who worked for the Bishop's Conference leading their justice efforts for decades. He likes to say that one way the Catholic Church is maybe the most countercultural is that our insistence that politics is a good thing. And curious for you, from your perspective, like why is politics a good thing? Um, well, you know, politics, if you, so if you go back to Aristotle, I mean, politics is just the organization of, of people in groups to do good things. So we, we think about politics as electoral politics and fundraising and campaigns, but, you know, politics is a, the body politic, the polity, it's, it's people organizing to do good things. And, and, you know, what I, I often think of is that there's a connection between religion, spirituality, and politics. You, you, I don't think we would have religion and spirituality if human beings didn't have an instinctive understanding that there is a gap between what is and what could be. Mm. I don't think we'd have religion or spirituality, and I don't think we'd have politics either, and we might not have art. I think the there is an innate sense that humans have, inborn, God put it there, we can see where we are, we can see where the world is, and we have a belief that there is a gap between what is and what could be, either in our own lives or in the lives of the world or our communities. That gap is sort of what spirituality is about. It's what politics is about. It's what art is about. And so I do think that Catholics believe in, in engagement, you know, and, and politics is a form of engagement. And another thing that I think is really cool about Catholics is I call it the bumper sticker test. We, we, we politically self-isolate so much in, in this society. More and more and more, we want to hang out with people who think like us. As a general matter, if you drive around in a parking lot at a mass, you're going to see bumper stickers reflecting all different kinds of politics. So within, within the parish, you know, in the pew in front of you, in the pew in back of you, there's going to be somebody who probably has a different political view than you. And, and that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. I, I, there's a small C Catholic universal element to American Catholicism where, you know, you find American Catholics of all political stripes going to mass together. And we don't do that enough in, in society today. Pope Francis has said that a good Catholic meddles in politics, talking about even folks who aren't elected, but that we're getting involved and we're bringing our voice to the public square. So I'm curious for you, if I'm your perspective. Like what specific values do you think Catholics as individuals and then even institutions like the Jesuits or the Bishop's Conference, what do we bring to the public square that maybe is distinctive? Well, I think we what we bring is, is you know, we ground our work in a sense of values. And, you know, I, I have cast votes that my hierarchy loves and I cast votes that my hierarchy doesn't love. But one thing that, you know, I think my bishops in Virginia understand about me is I'm not casting votes, you know, without really thinking deeply about the morality of the votes that I cast. And, you know, I think, you know, the Jesuits find God in all things. I mean, that's that that's the Ignatian. That's an Ignatian credo. And and I certainly got that thumbprint on my head when I was Jesuit educated to look for God in all things and in all interactions and in all people. And sometimes, you know, you got to look pretty hard. It, it may not be immediately obvious. And yet I, I do throughout my life, I've definitely felt sort of the God on my shoulder. I don't think there are accidents. I'll, I'll just give you an example. Yesterday, 
I got a call early in the day from uh, a friend who was accompanying a young lady who had come to Washington. And it was a young lady named Natalie who had been at the supernova dance um, party that Hamas attacked two Saturdays ago. And she had a very harrowing story. She was a New Yorker who was visiting Israel to go to a family wedding. And she had a very harrowing story about having to run for four hours being with gunfire and people being injured and killed and kidnapped. And she was in my office sharing it with me. And I, I was concluding the meeting with her. And then I suddenly looked up and realized we're voting on an Israel resolution right now, come to the Senate floor with me. And we went over to the Senate floor and I sat her in the gallery. And then I went down on the Senate floor. And as we were voting, I was telling senators about who she was so that they could look at her and offer, you know, gestures of support. My day started. I didn't know I was going to see her. And then I certainly didn't know that the timing of her being in my office was a timing that would coincide uh, together with casting um, a vote on a unanimous resolution in the Senate expressing support for Israel. But the fact that I was able to walk her to the Senate gallery and have senators kind of look at her and, you know, even in gestures offer support, that really lifted her spirits. And I'll tell you, it was really emotional for senators, too, mm-hmm. when I pointed out who she was, this 28-year-old young lady sitting there. That seems like a chance interaction. What was the chance that that would all happen at once? But, you know, you got to look for God in all things. And I definitely, I felt that uh, on the floor of the Senate yesterday with her presence and my Senate colleagues having uh, the ability to interact with her. I just was curious, uh, Senator, so when you ran for vice president, you got a perspective that not many people will have traveling the country and meeting people all over. And I'm curious about that experience. Like what maybe was one thing that surprised you from, from going out and going all over the country uh, in, in a campaign like that? You know, boy, it's hard, it's hard to bring it down to one. I mean, there were so many different insights. I did go to, I think I went to 140 cities and 41 States in 105 days. So I, I did see a lot of real estate um, interacted with people you know, I think my my experience and and I was interacting with people in two languages, because as far as I know, I was the first person on a ticket to be able to campaign very significantly, both in English and in Spanish. And I did a lot of media and a lot of just interactions with people in speeches to groups in Spanish. But I learned again what I learned when I was in Honduras. People are people. You know, we have we have fears. We have dreams. We have hopes. We have anxieties. Um, and, and, you know, the, the material circumstance of people that I met in Honduras was very different than in suburban Kansas City where I grew up. But people were people. And, and the, the, you know, the one thing I like about being Catholic is Catholic has that double meaning. It's a church, but it also expresses a universality. Mm. We're all created by God, and, and we all ought to search for that in each other. One of my favorite quotes is by the founder of the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers, George Fox. And I kind of use this as a prayer a lot. He said, walk cheerfully over the earth, answering that of God in everyone. Mm. So it's such a beautiful short phrase, but it's about walking, being vigorous over the earth, not just in your own comfort zone. You got to get out of your own comfort zone, answering. To answer, you have to listen. So you listen first. And then what are you answering? You're answering the divine spark in every person. And, you know, that commonality 
of people was a powerful, powerful feeling from the campaign in, in 2016. And it reminded me of that same um, insight that I had when I was in Honduras, facially a very strange and different place. But as, as my Spanish got better and better, I realized people are people. Well, Senator Tim Kaine, thank you so much for your public service and for uh, coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Mike, really happy we could do this. We'll be right back with my conversation with Harrison Hanvey from here at the Jesuit Conference. But first, I wanted to invite listeners of AMDG to join us for a live Jesuit Book Club event coming up next month. On Thursday, November 16th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be hosting a live Zoom conversation with Father James Martin, SJ. Father Martin's newest book is titled Come Forth, The Promise of Jesus' Greatest Miracle, and it's an in-depth exploration of the biblical account of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. Sign up to attend this free Zoom conversation at jesuits.org slash book club. Now I'm happy to welcome my colleague Harrison Hanvey onto the show. Harrison works for our Office of Justice and Ecology, where he serves as the Manager for Outreach and Partnerships. Just last month, Harrison was part of a delegation that traveled to Honduras to mark the 40th anniversary of the disappearance of an American Jesuit priest named Father Guadalupe Carney. Father Carney served thousands of poor Honduran farmers for decades before he was disappeared in 1983. The circumstances around his disappearance and death are still murky at best. And when Senator Kane was in Honduras in 1980 and 81, he spent one night listening to Father Carney in Nicaragua, where the Jesuit was in exile during that time. Harrison's experience in Honduras provides some helpful context for Senator Kane's time there. And what really struck me is how Harrison described that the issues the Jesuits were working on back in the early 1980s are still extremely relevant today. Well, Harrison Hanvey, welcome to AMDG. Thanks for taking the time. Um, so as you know, I just talked to Tim Kaine last week, and um, when he was in Harvard Law School, he took a year off, went to Honduras, where he met different worked with different Jesuits, including this um, really prominent American Jesuit named, um, who went by Father Guadalupe Carney. Um, and we'll link in the show notes to the article in the New York Times in which Kane talks about meeting Carney. Carney's a really interesting guy. And I, when I was thinking about uh, Tim Kane's experience there, you came to mind because you were just down in Honduras celebrating, marking, I guess, the 40th anniversary of Father Carney's disappearance. So why don't you just try to set the scene, like, for your own um, experience down there? Um, well, maybe first tell us a little bit about Father Carney and then, like, what you did when you, you were down in, in Honduras recently. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I was down this past September. Um, September marks the 40th anniversary of his disappearance and so he was disappeared in 1983 a lot of the details around that are fuzzy um and so as part of the commemoration this past uh just a month ago now the idea was to celebrate the work he did and the legacy that that he left on honduras and as well as call for more information about the details of his disappearance both from 
the Honduran government and uh, most especially the U.S. government, who's who has not revealed a lot of details about that. They have declassified some information, but a lot of that information is still classified. So uh, we were invited. Our group was invited down by Radio Progreso Eric, which is a Jesuit radio station and research institution down there who's done a lot of work, especially on um, environmental activism, working with social movements, campesino movements, uh, farmer movements down in Honduras. And so we were uh, invited down to participate in the 40th anniversary with them, as well as meet with a lot of the organizations they work with to be able to bring more um, understanding and, um, you know, uh, awareness of the different challenges. Because Guadalupe Carney, the the things he fought for and things he believed in, those battles are still going on today um, in in many of the same ways and especially in the same areas. I actually lived in Honduras for three years, uh, kind of 2012 to 2014-ish. And where I lived, there, about a 30-minute drive away, there's a town called Guadalupe Carney. And it's named after him because he helped organize campesino movements in that area um, to form cooperatives. So during his time, he formed or he helped form over 100 campesino cooperatives. Um, and so after his disappearance, this community was named after him. So the um, the celebration was was really moving on on the day. I think it was September 16th was the day that, that we commemorated that those 40 years. Um, and then the seeing and meeting with different groups who are working on a lot of those same issues, land rights, water rights, uh, was very powerful as well. Great. Yeah. Can we maybe pull back a little bit just for folks who aren't familiar? And I really didn't know anything about him until you were, you were telling me about him in the office. Um, so yes, yeah, help folks kind of get a little context on who was Father Guadalupe Carney and what, what was he doing? Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm actually reading his autobiography right now before he was disappeared. He finished an autobiography. And so I've, I've made it most of the way through. Um, he joined the Jesuits not uh, fairly young, but he grew up, went to World War II. Um, when he was in World War II, um, he, was, he was very devoted to his Catholic faith. And he said, being in the war, uh, he felt like he couldn't, because of his faith, couldn't shoot anyone. And so before he went into battle, he said he he had vowed to just shoot into the air, like to run and shoot into the air. Um, but he was actually an engineer. He studied engineering. And so they put him on engineering crews, building bridges and different things. And so he ever never actually kind of got into real intense battle situations. But when he came back, um, he learned about the Jesuits and uh, he, he was from the St. Louis area and ended up joining the Jesuits there, always with the goal of going to Honduras. He learned about Honduras. He wanted to go to Honduras and work for the poor. Um, the social implications of the gospel were what really motivated him. And so he talks about how bored and frustrated he was going through theology studies and philosophy studies because he just wanted to go down to Honduras and get to work. And so eventually they let him go down and... Um, I can't remember the exact year he got down there, but I want to say he was there for about 20 years or so. Um, moved to Honduras, immediately started working with the Jesuits there. He was assigned to 
the northern coast. The Jesuits are located, their headquarters are located at El Progreso, which is on the northern coast, not far out from the international airport at San Pedro Sula. And that that's the city where um that is where Tim Kaine was as well. He talked about that city. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Since since that's where they're headquartered. And yeah. So yeah, he was there and, and for the next um twenty years until his death, he worked with the poor organizing cooperatives. Um and you know, it was interesting also doing a lot organizing Christian based communities. So everything uh, was just through this faith lens. Um and he worked with nuns, worked with everything was like built around the church, this whole movement for land rights, human rights, things like that. It was just really integrated and with their faith and, and how their faith flowed through that. So talk about like what led to his, you know, eventual disappearance. I know there are certainly a lot of stories, maybe some more famous figures, whether like um, Oscar Romero or the, the Jesuits who were, were killed in at the University of Central America. Clearly, you know, the, the governments of Central America at this time, um, plus then like the, the support of the United States occasionally, right, uh, in like kind of putting down any seen as like communist sympathies or developments. And often the church siding on the side of the poor led them to be kind of targeted by those who were in power. Um, so, yeah, was was his situation similar to some of those those other ones we've heard about? Um, yeah, to kind of talk us through like what what happened to let that led to his um, disappearance. So he talks a lot about you know wanting to unite himself fully with the poor campesino of Honduras, the poor farmer of Honduras, and so when he goes there, he was really kind of turned off by, I would say, like. The, the wealth of the church or, or the wealth of some parts of society in general. But even he would rub Jesuits the wrong way because he, he would, well, one example is when he goes to do a, a couple years of Jesuit formation, they first send him to Belize and he gets off the plane and, and like the provincial or whoever it was, the, the superior goes to pick him up and takes him to the house where he'll, he'll be staying. And he goes, so this is the palace y'all live in? And the superior says, I can take you back to the airport if you want. <laughs> and so he was just kind of this really headstrong kind of figure. He knew, uh, you know, he was very strong in his beliefs um, and, and lived by his values without compromising uh, whatsoever. He, he, would, he was not into compromise. Um, another story is the Jesuits bought... Um, or I think for like pennies on the dollar, got this territory, this property in outside of El Progreso from the Tela Railroad Company, which was basically the banana, the U.S. Banana Company of Honduras. And the banana companies, the U.S. Banana Companies were known for exploiting the poor, paying, you know, their workers next to nothing, miserable working conditions. And meanwhile, they're making tons of money and having huge influence on the Honduran government and all this kind of stuff. And so the Jesuits got this property from him <laughs> and he said he, he was totally against it, not because they shouldn't have a property, but like that property in particular, he was very against because it came from, you know, these oligarchs, this multinational company. Um, and he said, you know, I, I, I would, I would not, I wouldn't talk bad about it, but I would refuse to tell people to go there. I would have my meetings in other places with people. So, you know, he's just very strong. And 
So as time went on, he started getting more and more like I essentially raising his profile in the country because he's doing so much work. He would be stationed in, you know, a, a parish somewhere, but he says, you know, I might spend five or 10 days a month at this parish, but the rest of the time he's just going around to different communities, organizing these cooperatives. And so there was agrarian reform going on at the time in 1960, an agrarian reform law was passed in Honduras that was very progressive. And the goal was basically to, what you had in Honduras was you had all these farmers who had no access to land. And so they couldn't survive. It was a, it was an agricultural society. And on the other side, you had these multinational companies who had massive tracts of land and you had oligarchs of the Honduran oligarchs who just had massive amounts of land and, and many times they weren't even being used. And so it would just lie fallow. And this agrarian reform said, basically, if you can prove this land isn't being used for the good of the people, it needs to be turned over to the people. And so the enactment of that was not always so simple, but what um, he fought for was getting people access to land. And so he would go around and, and, and not just not just in the narrow sense of you have your property and you farm it, but he believed in collective, working as a collective, working as a community. And so they would organize these cooperatives. People would work together, share the outputs of, of what they farmed. And um, yeah, share. it was basically like the early Christians' communities. And, and he talked about, you know, in Acts 2, everyone received according to their need and gave according to their ability. And that's really what he was trying to create. They saw this as, he saw this as building the kingdom of God on earth. Like the kingdom of God on earth is not going to be this dog-eat-dog, hyper-capitalist, everyone, you know, working for themselves kind of world. What it's going to be, the kingdom of God is going to be people sharing what they have, working together, living in harmony. And so that's what they were trying to create. And so as he goes around creating these cooperatives, um, he worked very closely with the, the Honduran government trying to enact this, this land reform. Rigoberto Sandoval was the name of the guy. And um, that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, specifically U.S. business interests from the banana companies, the oligarchs of Honduras who didn't want to give up their land. And so he talks about he got arrested and jailed and he said, you know, there's nothing that I've ever been more happy about than to be jailed for the people of God, to be jailed for the poor, Campesino, Honduran. Um, and then eventually, kind of towards the end of the story, he rejects his U.S. citizenship. He goes to the embassy and says, I'm, I'm rejecting my citizenship. I'm, I'm taking on Honduran citizenship. I want to unite myself fully to the poor so much that I have no desire to, you know, go back to the U.S. for retirement or, you know, medical care or things like that. I just want to live my life here with God's people, the hunter and poor. Um, and he talked about in the embassy, they tried to talk him out of it and all this stuff. And he eventually signs the paperwork, uh, gives up his citizenship, takes on during citizenship. But in 19, uh, I think 1979, he was expelled from the country for for the work he was doing. And so. Um, he was expelled. He went back to the U.S. for like a week and almost immediately went down to Nicaragua and worked in a parish in Nicaragua um, for four years before he ended up 
moving back into Honduras and then getting disappeared. So I, I know too that um, you, you've talked to me about that he had essentially served as a, a chaplain to some of the um, the movements that became violent, which I know is like a complicating part of his legacy in some ways. Uh, what? Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about about that and, and how he was involved then, kind of through those final years? Yeah, that's a good question. So basically, he, you know, when he was exiled and sent to uh, and moved to Nicaragua, he kind of viewed, you know, I'm putting words into his mouth here, but I think he kind of saw where this path was leading, that this, this, these things he believed in um, weren't, were going to eventually lead to his death. And so he said, you know, why is it that armies all over the world are allowed to have chaplains, armies that are, you know, doing a lot of damage all over the world, but guerrilla movements can't have a chaplain. The, the campesinos who are trying to fight for their rights and are taking up arms, why can't they have a chaplain? And of course, recently there was a revolution in, in Nicaragua that had just been won. There was a revolution brewing in El Salvador. And so he had this dream of a popular revolution in Honduras that the people would rise up and create this utopia that they'd been talking about. And so he said, if, you know, if armies can have chaplains, I think guerrilla movements can have chaplains too. And so there was this small movement of Hondurans who were going to try to start a popular uprising in Honduras. And they were training across the river in Nicaragua. And so he decided to join this, this uh, guerrilla movement as their chaplain. I think there was around 100 of them or so. Um, and eventually when they moved back into Honduras to try to start this popular uprising, the Honduran military just massacred them. And, um, I, I'm not sure if any of, maybe some of them survived, I'm not totally sure, but the details around his death are not clear. There are a couple theories out there. One is that originally what was said was that they just found his body. He starved to death. He was in his fifties at this time. So he was older than most of the people. Said, you know, he probably couldn't keep up. He was too old. He just starved to death out in the woods. He got exhausted and died. That was one theory. But then there were a lot of conflicting reports. There was a Honduran military man who said he saw him. He was captured. He was tortured. And then he was thrown from a helicopter into the woods um, in in the, this area called Olancho, this kind of dense jungle area. Um and, and so no one really knows what the full story is, especially because uh, most of the documents that have been released by the U.S. government are all edited and blacked out. So you can't see a whole lot of details. Um, but yeah, so so that was his that was kind of his belief at the end of his life that he felt like these gorillas needed to be accompanied spiritually as well. And as a priest, he could accompany them. So. Your again, your your visit there. Um, you again mentioned in or that meeting with you know groups, folks who are doing some of the same land rights work now, human rights work uh, with your Jesuits, other religious you were with. Um, maybe just like, was there anything that particularly that you'll remember from that trip, a especially moving story or, or moment? I know that there was a mass kind of with a bunch of Jesuits and others, a bishop, mm -hmm. right, kind of celebrating and, um, or just if you heard from any people who might have come across him or kind of benefited from his legacy. Yeah, just any any story you, you have uh, that you know will you'll carry with you. Yeah, you know, the the striking thing about his legacy is how 
um, current it still is today and, and how the things he fought for and the things he believed in are still things people are fighting for down there today and still losing their life for. Um, in, in Spanish, the, the theme for the anniversary was Guadalupe Carne, Memoria Vigente, like his memory lives. His memory is still with us. It's still active today. And the, the reason is because like land rights, rights to water, all these things are super irrelevant. Another thing we did when we were down there, we visited um, the wa water defenders of the Guapinol community. The Guapinol community is right where Guadalupe Carney worked. Um, there's a mine being put in on a national park illegally. This mine is um, poisoning the water. There have been several people killed because of it, killed by death squads in Honduras that are, you know, facilitated by these, um, this mining company. Um, and, and so the, his, this memoria vigente is just very present in the people's mind because these battles are still going on today. Um, so we, we have this mass, you know, there are probably a thousand people at this mass and, and the concert afterwards, there were several thousand people there and it was just striking how many people showed up for this gringo priest who was disappeared 40 years ago that most people, you know, only the older people really know him, but so many people showed up for this mass and, and the, and the celebration afterwards. Um, and this mass, it was, it was so interesting because the bishop, one of the, the new bishops of the country, he came from about six hours over to celebrate it. He lives in this, this area called Trujillo in Colón. He came to celebrate the mass and there are Jesuits up on the front. He's diocesan. There are Jesuits up there. Padre Melo, Father Melo is um, a very well-known human rights defender and Jesuit priest down there. He was on the altar. And then there, were, there was a, a Jesuit from the U.S., a provincial from the U.S. on the altar. And the homily that Henry Ruiz, the bishop, gave was just on fire. It really reminded me of the homilies that Oscar Romero used to hear Oscar Romero preach. He stood up there for about 30 minutes, and I think he yelled the whole homily. I don't, I don't think he spoke at all. <laughs> he pretty much yelled the whole thing. And he was just saying, you know, Jesus Christ was a person who came, who chose to live a life that was united with the poor. He was born born in a manger, you know, to a farmer, to a family that had to leave, um, had to migrate to another place for protection. You know, he lived kind of almost homelessly. This what this is the God we worship, and this is what um, our Christian life is, to walk with those who are outcast, to walk with those who are suffering. And we have to do that in, in a real and tangible way. And so he really invoked the memory of Carney and said, you know, this is someone who was prophetic. He didn't say, well, you know, these are just the way, this is just the way things are. This is just the way things are going to be. No, like we have to make this kingdom of God a reality here on earth and it's going to require work and it's going to require sacrifice and it's going to be require, you know, for him or it was, it was bloodshed. But, um, I think when we would ask people, you know, who knew Carney, there are several Jesuits we met there and, and other people who knew him, we would say like, what's this guy's thing? They would say, you know, he, he was a little bit crazy. He was a little bit hard to work with, but they all said he was prophetic. 
that the that what he was saying was trying to call us to the kingdom of God on earth and that he was a prophetic voice that that had to be there. And so it was it was really moving to see his legacy still alive, his memory still gathering the Honduran people. There were Honduran government officials there. There were social movements from all over the country um, came for that celebration. Um, that in the morning they had an agricultural fair and there was all these small farming cooperatives from all over the country that came to gather and share and, and, and sell their agriculture. Um, and so it was, it was really powerful to see his memory still gathering Honduran social movements that are working for change in their country. Well, Harrison, I really appreciate your taking the time and helping to fill in some of this context for, you know, Tim Kaine's like powerful experience, you know, a long, a long time ago more than 30 years ago, that then 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, that led then to his life of, of public service. And so I think, yeah, just to hear some of that context and then also how that work that he participated in is still going on today and how you've been involved in that. Yeah, that, that's really great context for us. And so, yeah, I think that'll be a really, really nice thing to put together with, uh, with Tim Kaine's own story. So thank you so much, uh, Harrison, for taking the time again and uh, see you in the office. Wonderful. Sounds good. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leach, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation with the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to AMDG on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Thank you.